On Pentecost, when the Spirit came on the disciples and the church was born, Peter preached a sermon based on Joel 2, 28-32. Joel 2 was the first uh, sermon text uh, that was ever preached on after the birth of the church. So I thought that it would be appropriate for us today as we're reading through the Bible and we've recently read Joel and we're still sort of in that time period of just before the exile uh, that we would look at Joel chapter 2 today. The background to Joel is that the people of Judah had suffered a terrible plague of locusts. Now, locusts are like big grasshoppers. And, uh, and I've never experienced that, but when I first moved to Texas, there were crickets everywhere. And I mean, I would get out at the gas station, especially at nighttime, and as soon as you step out of the car, it's crunch, crunch. There were just crickets all over the ground, all over the place. They would get into houses and businesses. It was, it was awful. Uh, so Israel and Judah were experiencing something even worse than that. There were these enormous locusts. I mean, locusts, locusts everywhere, not a crop to spare. They were just eating up everything. There were, the, people couldn't bring offerings to the temple because there was no grain left in the land. And people were either praying all night for deliverance or drinking themselves into oblivion. Things were so bleak. And in such a disastrous time, God gave Joel a message. And it was this. If you think the locusts are bad, just wait. Worse is coming. Now, not exactly a touchy-feely kind of sermon. But that's basically what the book of Joel is. And you can outline it this way. Joel chapter 1, he's talking about locusts. And he says that this is an immediate day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a big theme in a lot of the prophets, especially Joel. It's a day where God's judgment is coming. God is acting in a decisive way. And the locusts were a symbolic judgment, a warning that an even worse swarm was coming. And that's Joel chapter 2. Assyria is coming, and that is an imminent day of the Lord. It's coming, and it's coming soon. And though they, they would utterly destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, Assyria would, would not utterly destroy Judah, but they raided Judah. They burned up their croplands. They destroyed many of their fortified cities. They slaughtered thousands of people. But even this judgment was a foreshadow for another coming, the ultimate day of the Lord. When Jesus Christ returns at the end of time and God judges the living and the dead. And that's what Joel chapter 3 is about. Now, Joel doesn't go into very much as far as specific reasons for God's judgment on his people. But in the contemporaries of Joel that we've read, like Amos and Micah and Obadiah and Isaiah, they paint a very vivid picture for us as to why God is bringing this judgment. God's people have become wicked. They're practicing injustice and morality. They are utterly and totally depraved because they had forsaken their covenant relationship with God. They turned from God to idols for provision and for protection. They don't trust in the Lord alone. They're taking advantage of the poor and powerless. And you really just couldn't tell much of a difference between the people of God and the pagans living around them. Even their leaders, their, their, their judges, their kings, their priests were corrupt and wicked. And for those reasons, God was bringing a great and terrible day of judgment on them. Turn with me to Joel chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Joel says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. 
Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawning spread, spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey His command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Here Joel begins this chapter blowing a trumpet, issuing the call of warning. Blowing a shofar was the way that Israel was called to battle, along with with sounding the alarm. And what that means is it was like a communal shout. It was like a war cry meant to cause their enemies to tremble. But here Joel isn't calling the people to war, but to a warning. The trumpet blast isn't meant to rally the troops to a fight, but to call the people to a fast. It is God's people who will tremble. When I look at our world today, I wonder who is going to sound the trumpet for us. For the church today, I'm afraid, isn't all that different from Judah. We too have forsaken our calling as God's people to live holy lives set apart from the world so that we might be salt and light in the world. Too many Christians today are virtually indistinguishable from the people who play and live and work around them who do not know the Lord. We may go through the religious motions of going to church. Sometimes, take a look around. But are we living any differently because of it? We put too much trust in the false gods of this world, do we not? Idols like material blessings and possessions, careers, achievements in school or in sports, entertainment and pleasures, politics and stock markets. Surely the great and dreadful day of the Lord is coming. Christ will come again and we will be judged by our actions. He will hold His church and every individual believer accountable for how well we managed His blessings and obeyed His great commission to make disciples of all nations. How will you stand before the Lord on that day? What will He say of First Baptist Church Thompson on that day? 
But we must not just sound the trumpet and warn people about the ultimate day of the Lord when Christ returns because there are also imminent days of the Lord that we face as well and immediate days of the Lord. Every day we face moments of decision. We as a, as a, as a church today are facing an ever-growing opposition to the gospel in our culture. An opposition that is going to be far greater than what Judah faced with Assyria. And I'm not even beginning this morning to try to speculate about the kind of pressures and persecutions that I fear we're going to face in the years to come. And just as Assyria was a threat of Judah's own making, so will be the persecution that the church faces in the days ahead. Because we have failed our culture and our country because we have not been the people that God has saved and called us to be. We have no one else to blame for the state of our culture but ourselves, church. Because lost people are going to act like lost people. Sinners are going to sin. We are the ones who have failed to be salt to preserve the earth. We're the ones who have failed to be lights penetrating the darkness. It's you and me. We're to blame. Not Washington, not Hollywood, the people in the pews in America. Perhaps whatever may come will be like the Assyrians. It will be God's instrument of discipline and pruning for His church. You see, this isn't just some foreign army that's invading the land. In verse 11 it says, The Lord thunders at the head of His army. These are His forces following His commands. And the only weapons that will work in the face of God's army of judgment, the only way of escape from the dark and destructive day of the Lord are fasting, repentance, and prayer. And so we see another call. A call to rend our hearts and return to the Lord. Look at verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. Those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The one hope God's people have to escape the wrath of judgment is to return to God with all their hearts. That's what repentance means. Repentance means that you realize that you're going the wrong way, that your life is headed away from God and toward devastation. And the day of the Lord is meant to be a wake-up call to turn us around, to save us from ourselves. And here as Joel sends out this call to return, he answers some key questions for us today. The first is, when should we return to God? 
And it gives us the answer right there in verse 12. When should we return to God? Even now. Now. Though judgment may not come immediately, the call to repent and to return is now. Don't wait for things to get worse. Don't think, well, when I get older, then I'll fully dedicate my life to God. Oh, when, I, when, when my kids get older, well, then we'll get them more involved in church. Don't think, well, you know, things aren't really that bad today. I don't need to be too worried yet. We need to make the decision in our hearts now to stop, to turn around, and to follow Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it starts now with that inner conviction that must then be expressed in the days to come in outward actions. And Joel describes those next. He tells us how we should return to God. First, he says in verses 15 and 16, it's by coming together. Joel calls the entire people of God to gather in a sacred assembly in Jerusalem at the temple. The priests are to consecrate the people. That means that they're to purify and to set the people apart as dedicated to God. And no one is to be left out. The, the elderly and the children, even the infants... And this is so vital that everything else should be canceled. We should clear our schedules, even a wedding. Nothing should hinder God's people from coming together to seek revival and renewal. The writer of Hebrews draws upon this same imagery of God's people assembling together in preparation for the day of the Lord. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 10. And let us... Consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, what day is he talking about? The day of the Lord. The same day that Joel is talking about. Again, look around the room. 90% of churches in the United States today are either plateaued or declining. Meaning that they are not growing at a... Plateaued means they're not growing at a rate. Plateauing means you're growing at the same rate as your community. Declining means that your community is growing faster than you are. And for the majority of those declining churches, it's not just they're growing at a less rate, they're actually losing members. And even for churches that may not be losing members, less and less people are worshiping on Sundays. Less and less people are coming together for Bible study. Less and less people are serving their communities and going on mission through the church. Many of you in this room remember the days when this sanctuary on a typical Sunday was packed. How many of you remember that? Raise your hand. What will your grandchildren remember when they're your age about church? Guys, I'm not trying to fear monger, but we need to wake up. Can you imagine what would happen if all the people of First Baptist Church, men and women, children and teenagers, made it a priority to gather together every Sunday to seek God's face, to turn from our sins, to cry out to Him, to forgive our sins, to heal our land, and to pour out His Spirit on us anew and afresh? Can you imagine... 
If we treated the Lord's day so holy that we wouldn't let anything interfere with our coming together, not weddings or funerals, not sports competitions, not deer or turkeys, not a federal holiday, nothing. Do you think God would bless that? Don't you think the world would take notice and take us more seriously? Listen, if Chick-fil-A can take off every Sunday and still become the number one fast food restaurant in America, then can't you trust God to help your child make it into college without having to miss Sundays for them to be on a travel sports team? I think a lot of what we're reaping in our culture, especially among young people, and the statistics are frightening. The young people who go off to college and they go off and leave the church and they never come back. Among those young people, it's because they grew up in Christian homes, but they had little or no use for the church. It's because mom and dad failed to nurture a love for the Lord's day and for gathering together to worship with his church. The parents failed to nurture that love. When the examples of parents say that church is important only when it fits into our schedule, only when it's convenient, only until something better comes along, they are sowing the seeds of spiritual rebellion in the hearts of their children. Because those children are growing up in a world where following Jesus Christ is going to be less and less convenient. Where it's going to be more and more risky and costly. And the world is offering more and more to compete for their affection and their attention. How long will it be before it's not just the church they turn from, but from the Jesus who died for that church? Now is the time. For us to return to the Lord, to His holy day, to gathering together with His people in worship, prayer, discipleship, and service. Now. Joel calls them to come together and he calls them to fast. Fasting is a way to humble ourselves by the physical reminder that we do not live by bread alone. That there is more to life than fulfilling our physical appetites. That it's not about you. It's not about me. That's what fasting reminds us. In Deuteronomy 8.3, it talks about when God gave manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness. It says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God calls us to humble ourselves to examine our lives and our priorities and to realign our hearts with His. You know, when you drive your car down the road and you hit bumps and potholes and and things like that, eventually it knocks your wheels out of alignment. And you have to take it in and get the wheels realigned. Well, so too with our lives. This fallen world knocks our hearts and our minds out of sync with God and we need realignment. And we do that when we come together as a church. We do that when we fast and pray, when we examine ourselves. But sometimes our hearts have grown so out of sync and so distant from God's heart that we don't just need a realignment, we need to rend our hearts. And Job says that we have to return to God with rent, with broken hearts. 
And he's not just talking about ritualistic shows of piety like rending our garments. He's talking about hearts that are torn to pieces in guilt over how far we've gotten off course. In, in Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. But David prays in Psalm 51, 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. We need to shed real tears and real regret for how we have failed to be the body and bride of Christ in this world. When is the last time that you wept in prayer because of your sins? When is the last time that you wept because you were so convicted by how far you have strayed from God? Before our lives and our community can be fixed, God's people must be broken. And we must pray for broken hearts. And that's the final way that we return to God, Joel says, is in prayer. And look at what they're to pray for in verse 17. Spare your people, O Lord. Spare your people. Now, there are two foundations to this prayer I want you to notice. The first is it's based on their covenant relationship with God. You may remember that when God brought Israel out of Exodus, out of Egypt in the Exodus, brought them to Mount Sinai, God said to them, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were God's people. They were His inheritance. But secondly, the basis of this prayer isn't about Israel's reputation. It's God's reputation. It's God's glory among the nations. Because when God's people become as depraved and materialistic and greedy and self-centered as the secular world around them, we become a byword among the nations. And the world looks at us and wonders, where is your God? Revival is first and foremost about restoring the glory of God in the world, not growing our church. It's not about making ourselves feel or look better, but lifting high the name of Christ to the nations. And that should be our prayer. Another question Joel answers is, why should we return to God? In verse 13, he gives us two reasons. It's because of who God is and how God is. Who God is, He's your God. Again, it's about that relationship we have with God. For the people of Judah, God was the one who delivered them from slavery in Egypt and who brought them to a promised land and blessed them with that inheritance. He was their covenant God. And for the church today, it's about the relationship that we have with God through the new covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. God is the one who delivers us from slavery to sin. And He gives us His Holy Spirit and promises us that eternal inheritance in heaven. We return to God because of who He is and because of how He is. Joel said He's compassionate. That means that God goes beyond what is reasoned or expected. He's extravagant. In His grace and mercy. He's patient. That means that God is slow to get angry. He's not rash or impulsive, flying off the handle. He knows our frailty. And let's be honest, God endures a lot from us, doesn't He? 
And He's abounding. I love that word. He's abounding in steadfast love. This is that Hebrew word I've mentioned before, chesed. God's steadfast, unfailing, now and forever covenant love for His people. He's abounding in covenant love for you. These qualities are how God described Himself to Moses in Exodus 34. And Jonah, you may remember, was so convinced that this was God's character that it's the reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach because he knew that if the Assyrians heard the message and repented, God would relent, forgive them, and bless them. And Jonah didn't want that for the Ninevites. See, God's heart is bent toward patience and forgiveness. He longs to heal and restore. He's only waiting for us to make the choice between revival or reproach, between getting right with God or continuing to rob God of His glory. And that choice is for us to make. And then finally, Joel answers the question, what happens when we return? Look at verse 14. When we return, Joel says... God turns. He turns away His wrath. And God has pity. Again, that refers to His desire, His bent toward mercy and forgiveness. And instead of the curse of judgment, Joel says God will leave behind a blessing. And in verses 18 through 32, Joel spells out what that blessing includes. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord will be jealous for His land and take pity on His people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending your grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I'll drive the northern army far from you, pushing it to a parched and barren land with its front columns going to the east and those in the rear to the west. Its stench will go up, its smoke smell will rise. Surely He has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, all the locusts. My great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other, never again. Just for, to, to reiterate that point, never again will my people be shamed. God's passionate love for His people and His zealous devotion to His covenant will raise up His divine pity, His innate bent towards forgiveness and restoration. And the first blessing that He will leave is He will restore them all that they've lost. This is what God says that He will do after this imminent day of the Lord, after the Assyrian invasion. The Assyrians are going to come through, they're going to burn their crops, destroy their cities, slaughter thousands, but God promises to repay them all they will lose so that they will be fully satisfied. Now, how does that 
look for us today as the church needing to, to be awakened by the Spirit, needing to rend our hearts and return to God. What does that blessing look like for us today? Maybe you feel like you've wasted time and money and energy on things that didn't glorify God that did nothing to contribute to His kingdom. Maybe there's a sin that has taken hold of your life and it's robbed so much from you. And you want to repent. You want to change and follow Christ fully, but you wonder if it's too late. Well, in his sermon on this passage, listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, So the meaning of the restoration of the years must be the restoration of those fruits and of those harvests which the locusts consumed. He goes on to say, You cannot have back your time. But there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of years over which you mourned. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. It is a pity that they should have been eaten by your folly and negligence, but if they have been so, be not hopeless concerning them. All things are possible to him that believes. There is a power which is beyond all things that can work great marvels. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter how you've wasted and squandered your time, your years, your energy. God can forgive and He can restore to you those opportunities. God has a blessed future still in store for you. And the second blessing is freedom from their enemies. Because you see, often Satan, our enemy, he's the one who's throwing back in our face those wasted years. He's the one who brings our guilt and our regret and throws them back to us. He's the one that tries to draw us back to our old ways. But if we cry out to God for spiritual awakening, if we truly are seeking revival and renewal, God will drive away our enemies. And the guilt and the regrets of our past. I love what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3. He said, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Forget what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to the third blessing. Joy and gladness. Instead of fear and weeping. You see, once we experience the renewing work of God's Spirit, once we put the past behind us and we stride toward Christ, His commission and His glory, our fears turn to rejoicing. And gladness replaces the weeping. There's no more need to weep and fast and mourn and rend our hearts. Instead, we're filled with the gladness of walking daily in sweet fellowship with our Lord. And the other blessing that God gives is rain to revive the land so it can be fruitful again. The land had been burned and laid waste by Assyria. God says it will be renewed. He says that He will heal their land and cause rain to fall so that it can once again be a land of milk and honey producing all the fruit and grain and oil that Israel would ever need or want. The land is glad. And the people are glad when God's people return to Him with all their heart. But the greatest blessing of all and the source of true and lasting joy and gladness isn't restored fortunes. It's not renewed land. It's the Spirit of God Himself. Look at verse 28. And afterward I will pour out My Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. God's Spirit is a blessing. And and with it comes the call to salvation. This blessing is also the means by which God convicts and causes people to repent. The Holy Spirit has been illustrated. He is the power that changes God's people's hearts and turns them back to Himself. Just as God promised to pour out rain to revive His land so it can once more bear fruit, so God rains down His Holy Spirit to revive the hearts of His people so we can bear fruit. And we have to understand something here. We have to understand that when Joel wrote this, it's before the day of Pentecost. In the days before the church was born, God's Spirit would only come temporarily on certain people to empower them to accomplish certain tasks. In Numbers 11, God's Spirit comes on the artisans who are building the tabernacle. In Judges, we see His Spirit coming on men like Samson and Gideon to empower them to defeat Israel's enemies. But Joel is saying that there is coming a day when God's Spirit will be available to all people, not just a select few. And of course, we have seen this prophecy's partial fulfillment in the day of Pentecost when God's Spirit comes on, the church assembled there. We see it fulfilled even further when in Acts chapter 10, the Spirit comes upon the Gentiles for the first time. But there is a deeper fulfillment of this prophecy yet to come. Because the ultimate day of the Lord is still coming. The day when Christ will return to judge the world and make all things new. And Joel says... That leading up to that day, there will be wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. And he says the sun will turn dark and the moon blood red. Then the great and dreadful day of the Lord will come. And as I've said, I believe that we face dark days ahead. The Bible is clear that we have an enemy who is at work in this world to oppose the work of God in and through us. He stands against the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And Jude writes, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But there's good news. In the midst of all this darkness and smoke, there's a ray of hope. And the first is that God's Spirit will be upon His people to prepare them for the day of the Lord. God's Spirit empowers us, the church, to be His witnesses. To know and and proclaim the truth of His Word. To glorify the name of Christ. To pray according to God's will. And to develop within us the very character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. He is preparing us, the church, to face whatever may be coming our way in the world so that we can continue to march against the gates of hell because they cannot stand against us. 
And the second ray of hope is found in verse 32. It's the hope of salvation for all people who call upon the name of the Lord. Paul quotes this in Romans 10 when he says, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, if you've never called on the name of the Lord confessing your sin and turning in faith to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation and for His Spirit. In a moment when we sing our hymn of invitation, I invite you to come down and do that today. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And His Spirit will come and live in your heart and prepare you and equip you. And for those of us who are the people of God, the church, I want to call us this morning to pray for awakening for revival. We must, with desperate and broken hearts, cry out for a deeper working of God's Spirit in and through us. Perhaps that means we need to fast from some things, to put some things away, to help us to examine our hearts and prioritize our lives. We certainly need to come together as a family of faith and confess our sin and our unfaithfulness and our worldliness to repent and to return to our first love, to Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will do that with me in a moment. But there's one final question that Joel answers. And it's why does God relent and bless? If we do humble ourselves, if we do rend our hearts, if we do return to Him, what compels God to hear our prayers, to forgive us, and to bless us? And it's very simple. For His glory... In verse 14, when God restores the blessings to them, it's so they can bring grain offerings to the Lord. It's so they can have more to worship God with. God does it first and foremost for His glory. And verse 17 tells us it's for His glory among the nations. He doesn't want us to be a byword and a scorn among the nations, not for our reputation, but for His. God forgives us for His glory among the nations. He does it for His people. In verse 27, he says that he does it because God wants us to know Him and that He alone is God, that we have no Savior beside Jesus Christ. There are no other gods who can save and nothing in this world can satisfy. He forgives us and blesses us for His glory among the nations, for His people and for the world. In verse 32, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God desires for everyone to be saved. And when He revives His church, it's so that we can be that great commission force, so that we can be ambassadors for Christ and agents of reconciliation, so that we can carry the gospel into this lost and dying world, so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Last week in Egypt, a caravan made up of a bus and a couple of cars, were taking some Coptics, some Egyptian Christians, to a monastery in the desert to pray. On their way to prayer, the caravan was stopped by a group of ISIS soldiers. One by one, they confronted the people on the bus and in the cars, asking them to recant their faith in Christ and confess Muhammad and Allah. And one by one, these Christians refused. And one by one, they were shot dead. These Egyptian Christians were willing to give up their lives for Christ and for the opportunity to pray together in God's house.
And as I heard that story, I asked myself, would I do the same? Would you do the same? Because, you know, if we can't even risk missing out on a good day at the lake to worship with God's people on a Sunday, if we can't even risk looking foolish to a co-worker to share the gospel, if we can't even say no to just blindly consuming the media and messages of our depraved culture, if we can't put down our phones long enough every day to pray and meditate on God's Word, if we can't sacrifice our pleasures enough to tithe and give to missions, how can we ever stare down the barrel of a gun and hold fast to our faith in Christ? As our instrumentalists come, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me and pray for God to have mercy on us. To pray for God to break our hearts. For our sin. For our idolatry. For this very lost and broken world that is just hurtling on a path to judgment. Would you pray with me now? God, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. And break our hearts. May we answer Your call to return to You with all that we are and with all that we have. May we again be the church, the holy and peculiar people of God, called out from this world, to be messengers to this world, to hold out the word of life and to shine like stars in the universe in the midst of this very dark, crooked, and depraved generation. We need awakening, Father. We need reviving. Fan again the flame of Your Spirit within our hearts that we would live for Your glory among the nations and not for ourselves. This I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who left everything behind to die for our sins. Amen.